Reporters from WITF and LNP recently got together to discuss how they do their jobs and their hopes and fears for the future of news. Few industries have felt the effects of the digital revolution more than newspapers. According to the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 1990, the newspaper industry employed close to half a million people. But by last year, that figure had dropped by nearly 60 percent. WITF and LNP joined with Elizabethtown College to host a forum called Trust, Transparency, and the News. It was an in-depth discussion about how we got here and where we're headed. The event began with a talk by Jean Pretz, an associate professor of psychology at Elizabethtown College, who explained that everyone is biased when it comes to evaluating news. But right now we're about to hear from LNP editor Tom Merce, along with Paula Knudsen, a reporter for LNP's new publication, The Caucus, and me, Marie Cusick, WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. We begin with WITF's multimedia news director, Tim Lambert. I think one of the things that journalism has been missing in this digital age is more reporters sort of work on the go and more reporters are filing their stories from from outside the office is is that we haven't been talking to the public as much. We haven't been reaching out and communicating like we are tonight and being upfront and honest about how we do our jobs. So I think it's very important that uh, more organizations do things like that and I want to thank you all for coming out tonight. It's very encouraging to see that people care this much about what we do, unless you're going to start throwing stuff at us, then that's another problem here. But uh, I think the role of local journalism has has evolved over time. Um, I was thinking back on my career, and I started out as a journalist, you know, I hate to admit it, 20-some years ago, and uh, my first job was in Gettysburg. And when I would go to a school board meeting or a county commissioner's meeting, There might be a reporter from the radio station, which would have been me, that I worked at, a radio station in Hanover, the Gettysburg Times, the Hanover Sun, the York Daily Record, the York Dispatch. Some of the television stations might have come down to cover the story. The Harrisburg Patriot News might have been there. And now, due to various changes in the media landscape, there are now two reporters that are probably covering a meeting. Think about that. That's going from eight different organizations to two. So who's shining the light on what these borough councils are doing, these townships, these school boards, these county commissioners? It's, it's frightening. And I think that it's important to realize that local journalism jobs have, have been bleeding. Um, I know there's a lot of people upset about the media, um, and I think that anger is geared more towards what's happening on the national level, and nobody's paying attention to what we do on the local level. Um, what happens in Washington is important to you, absolutely, but what happens in those school board meetings and what happens with those county commissioners, that impacts your life more than anything. And if you don't have a watchdog that is going to be covering those meetings and, and letting you know what issues have been popping up, then you are going to be an uninformed electorate when it comes time to deciding who is going to represent you whether that is at a county level, whether that, that is at the state level, whether that is at the federal level. So I think it's important to, to take that in mind. And, you know, I know it's, it's great to go online and read whatever you want, and it's free. Um, I would ask that you support any local organization that covers the news. Uh, or you can read the Sunshine Law, and you can read the latest 300-page uh, proposal at the state capitol, like Paula does and Marie does, um, 
and, and, and try to figure it out on your own. And uh, it's hard enough to, uh, to work an eight-hour day, take care of the kids, cook dinner, and, and do it all again each and every day than to go to a meeting and break all this stuff down. So um, for me, I think it's important for us to talk to you about the job we're doing, but I also think um, it's important for us to ask for your support in what we do. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people support the Second Amendment. You hear a lot of people talking about that. I wish that uh, a tenth of those people would support the right to a free press, and then we would not be in sort of the problems we're in right now. Thanks, Tim. Tom? Thanks, Terry. Oops, sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. He's not used to speaking into it's great a to be here. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm Tom Merce. I'm with LNP. I uh, manage a team of editors and reporters and, and help direct news local news coverage every day uh, among a team of uh, several dozen reporters and also a network of uh, dozens of correspondents who traverse the, the, the back roads of Lancaster County to get to each one of our 60 municipalities from school board meetings to township supervisor meetings to borough council meetings uh, and on and on. I'm also the editor of the caucus which is a brand new weekly newspaper that uh, is dedicated to investigative journalism at our state capitol and state government. Uh, Paula is an investigative reporter on that team. Uh, I oversee those efforts as well. So I wanted to talk a little bit um, about retaining our trust among readers through transparency in, in our reporting uh, and the different things we do in the newsroom uh, and with the community. <clears throat> we have an editorial board that actually invites you all, members of the community, to sit on it and help us write and craft editorials and, and talk about the issues uh, and also write op-eds for us. Um, we hold meetings around the county, Coffee with LNP. Our reporters and editors uh, have been in New Holland and, and other parts of, of the county meeting with readers to talk about issues that are on their mind. Um, but when it comes to reporting, uh, what we try and do as much as possible online and in print uh, given the space limitations of print, oftentimes this stuff appears online, but it's go straight to the source material, published source material, to let people know uh, how we know what we know. So if we can post you know, records of um, school board meetings or legal settlements involving local police departments, we try and do that as much as possible uh, to help readers understand where the information is coming from. Uh, we also open up, open up lots of data for our readers online. We've published uh, salaries for public officials. We've published salaries for school superintendents, salaries for hospital system executives. Um, and and <clears throat> we've gotten lots of really good feedback from readers who, who like to use that information. Um, and I, I, I think it's great in helping tell the stories online in print. Um, our reporters also wade into the comments section of our website. Um, the great thing about the web now is instead of just two or three re editors reviewing a story, we've got thousands of eyeballs. You're, we're, we're witnessing fact-checking in real time. Uh, when we make mistakes, we correct them immediately online and in print. I think that's really important. You, you acknowledge the mistake, you own up to it, and when possible, you explain how it happened. Um, <clears throat> As much as possible, we like to explain how we did the reporting and also why we do the reporting. Uh, I'm a big believer in our newsroom of writing a really solid, crisp, what they call a nut graph. 
in every story. Um, <clears throat> that's essentially a mission statement. It's, a, it's an explanation of what the news is and why we're telling it, why it's important to you. And my feeling is, you know, every story needs one of these. Um, also, one of the things we do is we try and emphasize the reporter behind the story. You know, these are your neighbors. They're, they're taxpayers. They're people who have kids going to the, to the public schools. Um, a lot of them have been reporters at our paper for decades. Um, I myself have grown up here in Lancaster County, and I started out as a reporter at the, at the Lancaster New Era in the mid-'90s. Uh, the reporter who is covering this meeting tonight has been a reporter with us for a couple of decades. So emphasizing the personality behind the news, I think, is really important. And we've got bios of each of them on our website with, with photos. Um, and, I, you know, time is up. <laughs> Good evening. I'm Marie Cusick, WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. And for those of you who don't know, uh, it's a collaborative project between WITF and WHYY in Philadelphia covering energy and environmental issues. And we focused a lot on the state's natural gas boom. So a lot of my time is spent uh, in Harrisburg at the Capitol at public meetings and traveling throughout the state. In fact, tomorrow I'm getting on the road to State College. Um, so I just wanted to introduce myself first because when I thought about the title, Trust, Transparency in the News, I just thought I should say who I am and why I got into news. Um, I'm also a local. I was born and raised in Lancaster, went to Mannheim Township High School. But I was really deeply inspired by both of my parents. They were actually young reporters in the 70s, and they met at a small newspaper in western Massachusetts. Then my dad got a big job at the Philadelphia Inquirer, so they moved down to Pennsylvania. Um, my mom became a stay-at-home mom, and my dad worked at the Inquirer for close to 30 years. And he worked in Harrisburg, and he loved it. He loved exposing political corruption. Uh, I think he was delighted by the level of uh, corruption scandals in Pennsylvania. Um, but. Just knowing my parents and knowing many other journalists uh, as friends of mine, I just want to tell you what they're like. In my experience, journalists are idealists. Uh, we want to use the power of the press uh, to make society better. Uh, that does not mean we are pushing a partisan agenda, uh, but it's not a passive role. It's not being a stenographer at a public meeting. Um, you'd certainly infuse your own uh, views and experience and uh, into your stories. You absolutely do. Um, so I appreciated Dr. Pretz's presentation because I certainly own my own bias, and we are all biased, um, but that doesn't mean we're trying to impose a worldview on the public. Um, so the way I approach stories, really, to me, my personal definition of news is anything that's important or interesting. And Every single day I make subjective decisions about what to cover and how to cover it, and I talk to my editors, I talk to sources, I talk to colleagues, um, I read other news reports. So yeah, there's a lot of behind the scenes decision making, personal, our personal stories influence uh, what we cover and how we cover it. So again, I, I appreciated the presentation because I believe we are all biased, um, but that doesn't mean we're trying to change your opinion. Um, I think, you know, we, we all filter the world through our own unique lens. Um, so as a reporter, how do you try to get around that? Well, I feel like my job is to tell the truth 
and to treat people fairly. So if I'm writing a story, I try to call everyone involved, all sides, there's often more than two, um, and understand what their perspective is and tell the truth. So certainly I think news organizations make mistakes sometimes, we all do, um, but I feel like sometimes the way those are being characterized these days are, you know, if a, news, if a newspaper or a reporter makes a mistake, it, it gets blasted as fake news. And that's certainly very different than what's going on with actual false information being spread. So I think if you do make a mistake, the way you deal with it is you correct it quickly, you're transparent about the correction, and if somebody reaches out to you with a criticism or a critique, engage with them. I mean, I cover a very controversial topic natural gas, fracking, pipelines. <laughs> I am uh, you know, was down at the camp that's developed in Lancaster County uh, protesting the Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline a couple weeks ago. Uh, so I deal with a, a lot of pushback sometimes. And I, I think you just need to engage with people, and that's why we're here tonight. Thank you. Paula? Hi, everyone. It's so nice to be here and see so many faces from throughout the Elizabethtown community in central Pennsylvania as well. Um, I live here in Elizabethtown with my husband and my kids, and I see a lot of my friends here. So I think, as was mentioned earlier, you know, part of what we do is cover the news for our community. And for me, that community um, that I provide coverage on is the statewide beat. So the caucus, as Tom mentioned, is a new publication under the umbrella of LNP Media. And we launched in January of 2017, and I saw a few people out in the audience who were able to pick up a copy of our edition from last week. Our most, edition, uh, our most recent edition focused on Sunshine Week. Last week was Sunshine Week uh, all across the country with people celebrating and embracing why it's so important to have access to information, whether you're a journalist or a citizen. Um, anybody who cares about our communities needs to know what's going on. So the caucus is a watchdog publication. You'll see that right at the top of our masthead. And our mission is to provide careful, thoughtful, and balanced coverage that impacts um, citizens of Pennsylvania, what's going on with state government and politics. So we publish weekly, we are print only, and our stories take a lot of time. I am, um, by way of undergraduate training, a uh, journalist. I've also got a law degree. So I use my law degree to work on legal issues. I file right-to-know requests every day. A right-to-know request, for those of you who haven't used one, I encourage you to do so. Um, you might have heard of the Federal Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. Um, FOIA is a, a federal law that allows people to find out information about uh, federal government activities. Here in Pennsylvania, we have a freedom of information law called the Right to Know Law. Um, Terry was really involved with the overhaul of that several years ago, but it allows citizens and journalists to get information about what is happening in local government and state government. And sometimes uh, the government doesn't want you to know what they're up to. So that is a mechanism to pry out information and find out what's going on with finances, what's going on with contracts. Um, this is information that your taxpayer dollars are paying for. And as a watchdog publication, we're investigative journalists who are digging that information out. We're headed by Brad Bumstead, um, who's our bureau chief in, in Harrisburg. We also have a reporter in Pittsburgh. And 
We spend a lot of time digging through databases, digging up records, and talking to sources. And as Marie just mentioned, we try to talk to as many sources as we can um, to try to understand and then craft the story and explain it to our readers. Some of you may have seen our coverage in LNP. We recently did a two-part story on the statewide radio network that was started in the 1990s Taxpayers have spent more than $800 million, and the system still isn't working. So we work really hard, and I'm privileged to work in the Capitol newsroom with journalists from all over the state who are also working really hard to take um, what they learn in budget hearings and talking to legislators and take that home to their community. So um, I think this is a great opportunity for a dialogue about you know, what we do, what we can learn from each other, and how we can all help to build a better community. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. You're listening to Smart Talk. Today we're taking you inside a forum called Trust, Transparency, in the News. It was hosted by WITF and LNP at Elizabethtown College earlier this year. We're going to hear now from reporters and editors answering questions from the audience about how they do their jobs. Well, thank you to all of you who submitted questions. We have far more than I think we're going to get to. Uh, but I'll leave them up here on the very unlikely chance that the trust and credibility panel is uh, hurting for content. Um, but let's get started. Uh, we'll try to move fairly quickly. Um, Paula, the caucus. Is the caucus nonpartisan? The caucus is nonpartisan. Um, we've written about Republicans. We've written about Democrats, um, independents. We... we talk to um, political persons on all sides, and um, we try to present the information as we receive it, and often that's from public documents, what we're, what we're digging up. Uh, have you ever had any feedback related to a bias you have? If so, how did you hear and or incorporate the feedback into your broadcasting? Obviously to WITF. Okay. Um, <laughs> you can go first. Yep. So the question for me is, can you repeat the yes, first part of it? Yes, I can. How do you respond to concerns of readers that you are advocating for a position okay. as opposed to setting forth the facts? Well, <clears throat> first of all, we have conversations with readers who have those concerns, and we try to explain why we're reporting what we're reporting. And, and you know, as I pointed out before, the more reporting we can do on source material, on public records, on documents, the better. And, and, you know, whenever possible in print, and certainly always online, we'll share those records that we're reporting on. I think something that, that somebody's pointed out before is, is how you read a story. For some reason, if I happen to just emphasize a certain word, someone would mm -hmm. think I meant to, you know, speak ill of whoever the politician was or the source or something like that. So I think... Um, that's something that I, when I didn't realize that was happening, I was just reading it and you know trying to make it interesting for people so they don't fall asleep. Uh, but you know sometimes if you just happen to read it with a certain a certain enunciation or a certain flair, I think people might say, "Well, he seems to be happy about that." So we have to take great care in how we read the story. And um, an example that uh, Matt, who's in the audience, pointed out. Uh, this past week, we had a story about the uh, pension overhaul plan that the legislature might be taking up, and Matt said, you know, you used the word the Republicans plan attack on the pension overhaul. And he said, I read the story. It was a straight story, but that word attack could 
could imply something. And, and it was funny because I saw that headline that morning before he mentioned it to me. And I said, yeah, that's a little, a little you know, much. It, it, I, we should have dialed that down a little bit. And we did. So um, we, we are aware of things and we try to pick them up as quickly as possible. Um, this next one is uh, opinion or news? And I'll, maybe I'll start down at the end with Paul and we can come up. There are four. Opinion or news? Headlines. Head, headlines that I've seen? Headlines. Oh, are, they, are they, I think, supposed to be is the question. Are they supposed to be opinion or news? Oh, gosh. Well, I can say that we have discussions among our staff at the caucus about whether or not a headline accurately reflects the story. And we're trying to capture the story um, and also engage our readers' attention. And we have an excellent graphic design uh, artist who does our design. Our layout is beautiful. We want people to read our product. So one way to read it is to say, am I interested in this? And my answer is a little bit different because we are print only. And I think there's a distinction between as... um, our keynote speaker was talking about earlier kind of the volume of things you can see online and how that headline captures your attention. So I think our uh, response to that is a little bit different because we have a fixed print product that appears once a week. So I'll let Tom answer from the LNP perspective about a headline on, in the online sphere. But I would say that, Paula, you're still a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that about you, so I'm into that. Tom, I have another one for you. Do you want to give headlines? Your answer from LMP? I'll be a little more brief, in fact. Okay. (laughs) Let me give you the second one. (coughs) Stories about opinions on Twitter, stories about opinions on Twitter or Facebook, social media. Stories about other people's, presumably, opinions. Yeah. I mean, we report on what newsmakers, you know, key newsmakers post on Twitter because it's, it's a medium and it's just like saying something mm-hmm. in 140 characters. I mean, when the president tweets, we can have a big debate about what we should do. You know, do we cover what he does and not what he says? I mean, I, I, I believe that that is news. You know, and we, yep. we've got to cover it. Marie, adverbs or adjectives describing an event? Why not? Both. I don't know. Yeah, good. Right, well, right. It's sort of a little technical. Fair enough. All right. Tim, a one-minute piece on an all-day event. Unfortunately, that's what we do a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's, that's the basis of our daily newscasts. Um, you know, Marie will do a 40-second story or 45-second story on, on an event or a, or a press conference or whatever else is happening, and then she might produce a four-minute piece uh, that takes a bigger, big, big, more in-depth contextual story. So, uh, you know, that's sort of our bread and butter. Um, we do our best to, to be um, as thorough as we can in that one minute. Uh, I know there was a debate between the congressional candidates here um, in the fall that someone said, you know, this whole debate happened, and you gave us a minute, and you took mm-hmm. these comments sort of out of thin air, and and... Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and yeah. we ended up producing a longer piece later on about it, um, but that's just the nature of the beast, I guess. What percentage of coverage is political versus 10 years ago, and why? To anyone? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think our coverage, uh, 
since we don't have a very large staff, what we do is we, we produce or we have what we call content verticals. I know that sounds eggheadish, but um, it's basically where Marie covers uh, the energy economy in Pennsylvania. We cover uh, the healthcare industry, transforming health. We have a Keystone Crossroads, which takes a look at the struggles and successes of communities across the state. So we kind of focus on beats. And uh, the state capitol is absolutely a beat for us. Uh, there aren't many broadcast entities that, that actually have somebody at the capitol, and we do. And we feed those stories across the state. So um, I, I would definitely say we do more political reporting than we have in the last decade. I would, I would say that we do as well, and, and I'm frankly glad that we do. Uh, when I think of political coverage, though, it might be different than what we're talking about. Um, I'm not sure we do as much horse race coverage. We do plenty of that. and. and you know, I don't like a whole lot of it. Um, but when we're talking about political coverage, I think of how governments are run, uh, from our county government to our township governments to our borough governments. I mean, do we consider that political coverage? Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. But how a borough council votes on a, you know, a tax issue or a land use issue, that, that's certainly political. And, and I hope we have more coverage now than we you know, ever did with a with you know, vast network of correspondents and reporters who are on the field. You know, I, yeah, we do, and, and I'd like to see us keep increasing that coverage. And I think one of the challenges, too, with, with political coverage is you don't want to get into the horse race, and you don't want to you know, get into a he said, she said. What you want to do is be able to explain to people how this issue is impacting your daily life. And that's, I think, what is at the core of what both organizations try to do, is to take an issue um, like the Sunshine Law, to take is an issue like natural gas drilling and, and show why it matters. Um, when we started State Impact, Five or six years ago, uh, you know, many many folks in Lancaster County probably didn't care because it wasn't in their backyard and wondered why did WITF devote so much time and effort to this this drilling issue. Now there's pipelines here, and all of a sudden it's a it's a huge issue. So that is something we've been able to document for the last six years and and lead right up to this very intersection with Central Pennsylvania. Thank you. I'm going to leave a few questions up here, hopefully for the next panel. One last one. I am the brand new coordinator of the brand new Free Press Subcommittee of the brand new Grassroots Action Group in Hershey. What can we do to support, build, encourage, defend, and promote a free press? Write a check. All right. There you go. Subscribe. 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 Fair enough. Well, thank you to this panel. We're going to move to the next one with Dr. Dan Chen. You're listening to Smart Talk. Today we're taking you inside a forum called Trust, Transparency, and the News. It was hosted by WITF and LNP at Elizabethtown College earlier this year. And right now we'll hear from news consumers, people who read newspapers, listen to the radio, and read online news content. Good evening. Um, I'm Dan Chen, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Asian Studies here at the college. It is my great pleasure to be the moderator for our second panel titled Trust, Credibility, and the Savvy News Consumer. We have four distinguished panelists. Um, to my far right is Dr. Kirsten Johnson, who is an associate professor of communications here at the college. Um, next, we have Ms. Pleasant Sprinkle Williams, a first year student of communications here at the college. Um, next to her is Mr. Anthony Cazillo, who is an active LMP reader and a letter writer. Finally, we have Mr. Jim Foster, who is an active WITF listener from the West Shore area. 
Before we begin our panel discussion, I'd like to briefly review the recent public opinion trends here in this country to set up the context for our discussion on media trust and credibility. According to a Gallup poll, Americans' trust in the mass media has been declining in the past two decades. As of 2016, only about 32% of Americans say that they trust the mass media. Now, surprisingly, this is greatly shaped by partisanship. Republicans are the most skeptical of the mass media, followed by independents and Democrats. Generational difference is also pronounced. Those who are 50 and older trust the media more than those who are 18 to 49 years old. It is important to know, however, that the declining trust in the media is not unique. Most major institutions in this country have seen declining trust. For example, trust in the federal government has declined even more dramatically in the past several decades. As of 2015, only about 20% of Americans say that they trust the federal government, according to Pew Research Center. Given the declining trust in the media, it is important to know what the main reasons are. With the media expert and savvy news consumers as our panelists, I'd like to start with a basic question about um, your media consumption habits and media trust. Um, so where do you get the news? And do you trust the media outlets from which you get your news and information? And if so, how did you decide whether to trust a media outlet? Um, and Mr. Foster, would you like to start first? Sure. I mostly get my uh, news media from uh, National Public Radio, probably that more than anything else. I, I, uh, and WITF is, of course, uh, an NPR affiliate. Uh, beyond that, uh, from uh, local news sources in, in the metro Harrisburg area, that's uh, primarily penlive.com and the Harrisburg uh, Patriot News. Uh, a little bit from uh, public television, a little bit from the, uh, the, the major networks, uh, NBC, ABC, CBS. Those are, those are the ones. In general, I think that I do trust them. Um, I think that uh, they've. I, I the trust doesn't come uh, for granted. I've, I've looked at various uh, studies as to which uh, media sources uh, are generally trustworthy. I, I on occasion I like to read some conservative uh, media and some more liberal media, uh, but uh, more than anything else, I, I probably listen to. Uh, to uh, those sources. Okay. I, uh, to answer the question, I really don't trust any single uh, news outlet because everybody has their own point of view. Everybody is going to, f excuse me, filter whatever they have to say through their own viewpoints and their own experience. Um, some of the younger people in the room might know the website that I get most of my news from. It's called Reddit. Uh, their tagline is the front page of the internet. Um, it's, it's users largely uh, post and then curate which content gets seen and not seen uh, through upvoting and downvoting posts and then upvoting and downvoting comments on those posts. Um, so I, I have the unique privilege of, you know, of getting my information from every, you know, network news, uh, you know, some more smaller blogs, things like that, but then having, having the ability to look in the comments and see, you know, where did this article miss? It was alluded to earlier that 
Uh, they, there are more editors now than ever, than ever before in uh, comment sections. Um, and if you Google this, uh, Cunningham's Law, the easiest way to get to the correct answer of a question is not to ask the question. It's to ask the question and then provide the wrong answer. Because people, you know, will largely will not answer you out of the goodness of their heart, but they will answer you if they get to one-up you. <laughs> Hello. Um, I know personally I do use the, I use online as well as television to find my news, but I'm a prime proprietor of actually going back and fact-checking what's going on. If I see something that I think is right, I go online and I try to find different viewpoints and also cross-reference it. If I think it's wrong, I do the same exact thing. So in the interest of transparency, I do need to disclose that I'm not just a consumer of news, but a former producer of news. Uh, I worked for nearly a decade in local radio and television, and most recently at WGAL-TV in Lancaster. So just so we're being transparent, and my bias is on the table um, when I answer this question, um, I do get most of my news from television or through this device that has really changed the way we consume news in so many ways, right? Because news is now always at our fingertips. We no longer have to wait for the TV news to come on. We don't have to wait for a newspaper to be delivered. So I think that's, that's an important part of this conversation that we haven't talked much about yet, um, is how quickly news travels now and the pressure that that puts on journalists to turn news and information around very, very quickly. Um, so in terms of trust, I think that also factors into it too. I always look at... Um, Who's providing this information? Do, are they a reputable source in my mind? Um, how quickly has this story been turned around? Um, and are other people reporting the same thing that the initial reporting outlet um, has reported? Um, since many panelists mentioned that they consume news uh, through online and social media channels, I think uh, the notion of citizen journalism is a worthy topic. So citizen journalism has become more influential as technology advances. It refers to the reporting of news events by members of the public, so not professional journalists, uh, using the internet to spread the information. It is easily spread through personal websites, blogs, microblogs, and social media. As savvy news consumers, what do you think of citizen journalism? Do you find it trustworthy and credible? Um, I think citizen journalism is uh, is fine, and it it has a role. But uh, the the uh, uh, organizations like LMP and WITF they they have a, a fairly rigorous setup where where someone goes out and gathers the news and then there's an editor who evaluates that and advises and perhaps insists on some changes. Um, and that, that's an important kind of regimen uh, and it, it, it is very useful. Um, there's nothing wrong with individual people going out and, and finding what they believe to be the, the truth and, and, uh, and, and uh, disseminating it. It's just, you have to keep in mind that's one person's opinion. Uh, as far as uh, citizen journalism, I see it. I, I see it as one piece of the pie. Um, you're never going to get the, the full picture, like I said earlier, with with any one single news source. Um, and I think it serves largely a different purpose than something like LNP, uh, like the one panelist on the last panel mentioned. You know, at a you know at a uh, township supervisors meeting, there's really there's probably not going to be a citizen journalist there. 
uh, they're probably going to be doing more things like analysis or um, I, I guess in the case, the, most, the one that's most prominently in my mind would be from the last election on September 11th, the, the video of Hillary Clinton collapsing, whereas before those were rumors, conspiracy theories, and then somebody who has you know, the device that we all carry now in our pocket that allows us to be our own broadcasting station, they captured that and they shared that with the world. I'd consider them a citizen journalist. I think um, in that sense, the, what we call the news is largely becoming greatly decentralized, and I think that... Um, while you know some of these old bastions will always have a place, I think uh, the role of uh, citizen journalism will continue to, to spread. I know as, as a college student, also just on being the youngest on this panel, um, it's I like to think of citizen journalism as you and a group of friends looking at an event going on. There are three, let's say there's three different people. Each person will see something differently, no matter what's going on. You'll take it in differently, like Dr. Perez was saying. You're going to filter what you want to filter out and put in. I may hear an emphasis on a word that no one else may saw the emphasis on a word, or may see a gesture. This is really important when it comes to news and what you see as well, because that will change a lot of what you see or what you think is going on in the situation. So citizen journalism is really a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I've been studying it for about the past 15 years and also did my doctoral dissertation on citizen journalism. Um, and I became really interested in this topic because when I was working in a newsroom in the early 2000s, people were saying, oh, there are these citizen journalists out there and they're going to take our jobs. We need to watch out for them. And I thought, really? Are citizens going to be able to do the same job that we're doing? And there was a lot of, there were mixed thoughts at that time about this. And what we've seen over the years, since I've had the chance to kind of study it from the beginnings, it started out as community journalism and then turned into the citizen journalism, is that citizens simply don't have the time or the commitment to put into really researching stories and doing journalism well, getting all sides of a story. So, um, so journalists kind of, I think, have started to relax about this idea that citizens are going to suddenly take over um, the jobs that journalists once had. Um, and also, citizens just don't have the reach. So there are many, there are over 500 citizen journalism sites um, just in the United States, and these are kind of the more major citizen journalism sites. Um, and they don't have a huge following. They don't have a huge readership, um, perhaps in their communities, um, hyper-local, but not, not large followings like a WGAL or an LNP or a WITF. Um, and these, and what happens is these journalism sites they launch and then as quickly as they launch they realize it's a lot of work and then they shut back down and in talking to these citizen journalists and the people who own these citizen journalism sites they just simply say they can't the revenue model doesn't work they can't get people to advertise if you can't get people to advertise you can't pay you can't pay citizens to do this reporting so uh, the business model just doesn't work right now at least not at this point um, and, and I don't, it's honestly, it's not poised to make any sort of turn in the future. So I think citizen journalism, this hope that the people would kind of rise up um, and do, do the reporting just hasn't really come to fruition over the years. All right, now let's take some audience questions. The first question is directed at Dr. Johnson. Um, why is it so important to get the story out fast? Does that lead to misinformation? 
Yes, it does lead to misinformation. Um, why is it so important? Because everybody wants to say they're first. Um, when I worked in a newsroom, it was a big deal to be able to then run a promo later in the day, a promotional announcement that said WGAL was first at the scene. Uh, we were the first ones there. We gave you that information first. Um, being first with information, and I can really, I've only ever worked in TV news, so I can really only credibly speak to that viewpoint. Um, but that was kind of, it was, it was everything to get the story out first um, and to be first on a scene. So yes, it's very important. Um, does it cause misinformation to happen? Absolutely, because in that rush, sometimes um, things don't get verified as thoroughly as maybe we would like for them to get verified, quite honestly. Um, I had that happen when I was producing in a rush to get something. I did the noon newscast for many years in an, in an effort to get information on a noon newscast. We may have made an error, but as previous panelists said, we very quickly corrected that error. If we, in a breaking news situation, a lot of times there's information coming from a lot of different sources, and you're trying to do the best you can to sift through that under incredible, a lot of time, emotion, at times emotional distress, um, and you're trying to get that information out, but it does happen that information is incorrect sometimes. Mm -hmm. Second question. Older people trust the media more than younger people. This could be due to more skeptical thinking among millennials. Is this skeptical thinking a good thing or dangerous? Should skeptical thinking be encouraged or discouraged? Anyone on the panel? I think I'll take this one. Um, <laughs> as a millennial, I was, I don't know. Let me start over. Elizabethtown College, we have strengths, my five top strengths. I have two of them. I have analytical as well as strategic. So I'm a big person in terms of I'm going to sit there, I'm going to think, I'm going to question. You learn a lot by asking questions. Sometimes if someone just tells you something, you nod your head. You'll never find out whether or not it's true or how much you actually care for it. Um, and I think it's dangerous at times because there are moments in which questions can be dangerous if you don't phrase it correctly, but it's important to always ask questions. You'll never know if you don't ask a question. You'll never understand something if you don't ask for someone to go more in depth because maybe you'll learn the person doesn't know as much as they thought they did on the subject, or maybe you'll learn that they know so much more than what you can assume. If I can, I'll, <laughs> I'll respond as the uh, designated old person on the panel. Um, <laughs> I, there's nothing wrong with the healthy skepticism. I, I uh, try to be skeptical, uh, and I encourage everyone else to be skeptical. But at the end of the day, there's a difference between truth and falsehood. And uh, it's, you should avoid the impulse to think that just because uh, some things may or may not be true, uh, that, that there is no difference between truth and falsehood. And uh, that, that's, it's kind of a slippery slope, and you need to avoid the slippery slope. Very good. Um, next question, what value do you place on international news, uh, new, international news sources, such as BBC and Reuters, uh, in analyzing our domestic news? I'll take this one. Uh, as for this last election, I really appreciated a lot of uh, BBC news because they largely had no skin in the game and I could look at them as somebody from the outside looking in. I'm sure it was, you know, as a cultural anthropologist, it was very interesting for them to, to observe everything that happened in this election. That was unlike anything we've ever seen before. 
Um, so I do, I do like BBC, and I think you said Reuters, Reuters. Uh, <laughs> international news sources like that for domestic issues, definitely. Yeah, and I'll just add, I do think that international news sources are, are a good source of information, but you need to look at them with the same amount of skepticism that you look at any other source of information. All right, we have one more minute, and so I'll squeeze in one more question. Uh, do you feel the 24-hour news cycle has changed the way news is written and uh, produced? If so, how? Okay, I guess I'll take this one. <laughs> um, yes, I, I believe it absolutely has. And I was, I guess, fortunate to be in a newsroom during a time when we went from when there wasn't really a 24-hour news cycle to when there was. Um, and... Yeah, there, there's intense pressure when you're, you know you have to push a story out on Facebook or you know you have to push readers to your website um, to get the latest information, um, to get the story out there quickly and as accurately as possible. So um, it absolutely has changed the way things are done because I feel you, you tend to put out little bits of information mm -hmm. um, instead of before when there wasn't that pressure to put out things 24 hours a day, you made sure you, you had your story ready, you put your, uh, you know, you put your minute 30 package together and you, know, you were like, oh, I, I talked to everybody possible, okay, great, I feel good about this story, we're putting it out. Um, now with Facebook, Twitter, uh, you're, sometimes you're getting news real time. You're, you have a reporter at a courthouse who's tweeting real time as they're witnessing things happening. So um, while that's kind of nice because it gives you a chance to have some unfiltered information in a way, um, again, that can lead to some things coming out that may be misinterpreted. It's, it's easy to misinterpret things on, on Twitter. In 140 characters, it's very easy to think that something says something that it doesn't. Thank you. All right, that concludes our panel. Thank you for your attention. Hello, my name is Bob Krasny. I'm the chairman and publisher of LNP Lancaster Online. First, let me take care of two important items. Car keys uh, and a scarf uh, were left behind in the reception area. Uh, please stop at the table by the exit door if you'd like to claim them. Second order of business is I'd like to thank Dr. Strickwarda and Elizabethtown College for hosting the event tonight. I'd also like to thank Kathleen Pavelko and her colleagues at WITF for participating, and Terry Henning and her colleagues at uh, the Pennsylvania News Media Association, and Ted Sickler and my colleagues at LNP. I'd like to thank the panelists and all of you who've attended tonight's session. So thank you all very much. I think it's become clear from the conversation this evening that democracy is not a spectator sport. The internet has provided easier access for citizen participation. Access alone does not ensure the truth, or engender trust. We live in challenging times, and in fact, as you heard from the last panel, perhaps we should all 
have the skepticism of millennials. We have access to an overwhelming number of news sources, and we approach them with our own biases, as Dr. Pretz explained earlier this evening. We must learn to be discerning. We need to work harder and dig deeper to understand how our news is sourced. You've heard tonight from trained journalists, media professionals, and engaged citizens about how they prepare, present, and consume news. We hope tonight's discussions have given you a sense of how credible news organizations like WITF, LNP, and community newspapers across Pennsylvania go about gathering news and information to help you become better informed citizens. You've also seen how schools like Elizabethtown College are training the journalists of tomorrow to follow the time-honored traditions of the craft. We hope you're inspired to continue the conversation that we started here tonight through your engagement with WITF, LNP, and your community newspapers. Thank you again for attending tonight's conversation. Safe travels home. We've been listening to Trust, Transparency, and the News, an in-depth discussion hosted by WITF and LNP at Elizabethtown College, taking questions about news media bias, explaining how reporters and editors do their job, and examining the changing face of the news business. Thanks for joining us on Smart Talk. This is WITF FM Harrisburg 89.5, Lancaster 99.9, and WIPM Chambersburg 93.3, your home for NPR News and all things regional.